Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 42 and the English have just seized the Cape. Remember at the time they were in a world war with the French and revolutionary fervour had swept the world with its populist refrains, its berets of southern France and liberté, equality, fraternité narrative. This had also swept the globe all the way to Graf Reinet in the upper Zürfeld on the Cape frontier where the Trek Boers were motivated to throw off the corrupt yoke of the VOC and then in turn the new English rule. As we heard last episode, Major General Craig had ensconced himself in Cape Town as the military governor and was about to take action against the Boers in Graf Reinet when intelligence reports indicated in January 1796 that the Batavians and the French allies were fitting out an expedition to retake Cape Town. As you've also heard, the British sent a strong naval and infantry force to the Cape, and by July 1796, there were 8,400 troops stationed there, with another 1,000 on their way. There were now 14 warships patrolling the seaways around the Cape. So the Batavian squadron of eight warships and a cargo vessel took five months to sail to the Cape because its commander, Rear Admiral Engelbertus Lucas, had to evade British patrols. On the 6th of August 1796, he anchored in Saldana Bay on the west coast north of Cape Town. Lucas had anticipated support from a French squadron, but they had decided to bypass mainland Africa and head straight to Ile de France, or Mauritius as we know it today. Poor old Rear Admiral Lucas was now facing a very large English force with a very small chance of success. First, the British commander Elphinstone blockaded him from the sea, and then Major General Craig brought up his British troops to the Saldana Bay shore. Lucas was surrounded, so to speak, and the English troops weren't there to collect crayfish. On the 16th of August, one of Lucas's frigates fired a few cannon shots at the British on the beach. Members of the Pandor Corps, we've heard about, had never been fired on by artillery, and some actually fled, but the English regulars held firm. Commander Lucas had another problem now. His crew mutinied. Short of supplies, outgunned, and facing insurrection in his own ranks, he surrendered on the 17th of August, and the British seized his entire fleet intact. Elphinstone sailed back to Britain as a hero, and for his decisive victory over the Batavians at Saldana Bay, he was created Baron Keith in the Peerage of Ireland. This British victory had a profound effect on the Cape. The Boers suddenly realised that the English were here to stay, they had shed blood for the territory. So the Graf Reinet rebels grasped reality and submitted on the 12th of November 1796. Major General Craig responded by pardoning them. We'll return to the Trek Boers' next actions at the end of this podcast. Meanwhile, we need to scrutinize other matters. As Adam Smith had noted a few years before, the Cape of Good Hope was crucial to the future of the nations of the world at this stage of history. And so, as the English arrived, we need to first understand what was going on with regard to the Cape's economy in the last few years of the 18th century. By the 1790s, a powerful farmer by the name of Jakob van Rienen had built up his fortune in land holdings, meat trade, and the production and sale of alcohol. On his death in 1793, Jakob left a number of sons, all of whom rose to prominence in Cape society. One son, called Dirk, built the largest and most successful wine business there, while two other sons, Jakubus Gisbert and Sebastian, went into the lucrative meat merchanting business. While the wine merchants granted credit, it was the meat merchants who caused the Cape its biggest problems when it came to the economy and finances. The Pandrenans were called the brothers, or die Gebrudes, 
Another irony here, later in the 20th century, it was the Bruderbund who was going to cause South Africa some damage, but of course, that was much later. Bruders and brothers, the sins of the fathers. So, let's take a closer look at the Van Rienen's business. Its sheer size was gobsmacking. In the early 1790s, their operating costs were listed around 100,000 rix dollars. The entire available money supply in the Cape at that time was around 500,000, so that gives you an idea of how influential they were. A history of monopolies and conglomerates was well underway in South Africa, a reality that exists to this day. By 1792, the meat trading houses were basically the colony's banks, crucial in the process of trade and all financial services. But they had a problem. How to conduct business between Cape Town and the frontier? And this question became more pressing as the frontier expanded. Imagine what it meant to hold cash at this time. What was the unit of account, or to put it bluntly, the currency? That was not a simple question back in 1795. The Cape had adopted a system similar to Amsterdam's, where a merchant's letters of credit began to work as currency. An IOU was a currency, in other words. So, the Cape butchers were like bankers as they handed out what were known as slachtersbriefse, butchers' letters. These were promissory notes they issued to Cape Town's surrounding districts like Swellendam and Stellenbosch. The large van Rienen Gebruder company was particularly well-placed to do this. Cape Town and its surrounding districts did not go in much for livestock farming, being mainly devoted to wheat and wine. In outlying districts, farmers would sell their livestock to van Rienen's agents or slachtersknechte, who would issue a promissory note against the sale. The briefer would be exchanged for cash in Cape Town. This developed into a major banking industry in the Cape because the farmers accepted these notes as there was a shortage of hard currency of all kinds. Just a quick note, which I think needs to be interjected. The major currency at this time was silver. And to add a little irony, most of the world's silver in the 1790s was heading to China. For centuries, the Chinese had demanded payment for their exports in silver bullion or coin. They attached a far greater value to silver than gold, as shocking as that sounds. From as early as the 12th century, Europe saw a high proportion of its bullion flowing eastwards. It's thought that up to half of all silver mined in the Americas between 1527 and 1821 found its way to China. Back in little old South Africa, it was promissory notes, not silver, that drove commerce. So it was then that the sheer monopoly the Van Rienens exercised over the meat market and the financial system of the inland region of Southern Africa cannot be ignored. But these Brudas were about to run into financial difficulties. Their collapse would trigger a general collapse, and it was caused by men taking risks. As we've heard already, the transport challenges along the frontier were a threat to everyone, Amakosa or Boer. Just before the British invaded in 1795, for example, the VOC was regularly exposed to raids on travelling parties. In June 1792, 6,000 sheep and 253 cattle were lost in a single raid at the Liuhamka River. Loans then went out of control. The Brudas demanded loans to protect their livestock and loans to protect the loans. Uncontrolled loaning topped 300,000 rix dollars, so as the British arrived a couple of years later, they ran straight into this strange financial system. The British realized swiftly that the Cape economy's serious weakness was a lack of a domestic bank. Yes, the Gebruders van Rienen crisis showed how dangerous the rise of unregulated debt obligations could be. In 1793, the Bank of Lending, or Bank van Lening, 
was created in the Cape to provide settlement at 5% per year against qualifying collateral land and gold. Not silver, by the way. Again, we have resonances in America. Only two years earlier, in 1791, Alexander Hamilton, the first Secretary of the United States Treasury, had created that country's first federal-level bank, known as the First Bank of the United States. As we've heard, there was a close affinity between the goings-ons in America and Southern Africa. Both were frontier economies exposed to the pressure of the European nation-states. The global economy, too, was in a process of extraordinary change. The VOC was nationalized in 1796 and then formally dissolved in 1800, having experienced financial difficulties and having lost most of its possessions. Europe itself was disrupted not only by the Batavian Republic, but also more seriously by the French Revolution of 1789, which battered the establishment. In amongst all this destabilization, the English entered the South African equation. It was perhaps inevitable. London had coped with paying the Chinese all the silver I spoke about earlier and supplied the Chinese with a plethora of goodies, scented woods, cinnamon, swallows, nests, sea snakes, sharks, fins, ivory, rice, sugar, spices, and later opium and textiles. Sounds rather modern, except perhaps for the opium bit. These were mainly picked up in Indochina by the ships on their way to fetch cargoes of tea and silks. The English East India Company was re-exporting to China British goods, which had risen from around £100,000 a year during the 1780s to a million pounds in the 1790s. A British representative was lined up to be sent to conclude a commercial treaty with the Chinese emperor, who was known as the Son of Heaven. London also began gathering together a group of men to send to the new embassy in China. As Prime Minister William Pitt cast around for a leader of this mission, it was suggested that he send someone of strong talent, great address, steady perseverance and inflexible integrity. And this man apparently was Earl McCartney, who had already carried out the same assignment in Russia. Little did McCartney know that he'd end up in South Africa within a decade. McCartney was a self-made man who'd married into royalty. He hitched up with the daughter of the Earl of Butte. Then he established powerful connections with George III, amongst others. By the time he was asked to lead the Chinese delegation, he was 46, and his career had included Chief Secretary of Ireland, Governor of Grenada and Tobago during the American War of Independence, Governor of Madras in India, where he had led the British in their final battles against France's Indian allies. After returning from Russia, he was dispatched to China and chose Sir John Staunton as his secretary, and Staunton, in turn, chose a youngster by the name of John Barrow to be McCartney's private secretary. Barrow selected gifts he thought the Chinese emperor would like, including telescopes, theodolites, air pumps, and even electrical machines. This was the same John Barrow who would end up on half the maps of Canada as he sought a northwest passage to the Orient above North America, just by the way. In what could have been a cartoon moment, the Chinese led the embassy staff into Peking with a banner proclaiming, Embassy from the Red Barbarians Bearing Tribute. I'm sure the British were not entirely happy with being called the Red Barbarians. Barrow's carefully selected tributes, however, were scornfully tossed aside. Then, to make matters worse, McCartney refused to make the formal kowtow, which involved descending to all fours and touching the ground with your forehead in front of the emperor. Some people just don't know how to act in front of the Son of Heaven, you know. The British embassy in Peking was a failure. By 1794, McCartney was back in Britain in time to watch the successful advance of France through the lowlands, including Holland. 
The importance of the Cape was now clear, thus the invasion by the British a year later that we've heard about. McCartney, of course, had visited the Cape like most British officials who travelled to and from India and China and back to Britain, and given his international experience, he was the natural choice to take over from the military commanders in Cape Town. And the British were now peering at South Africa with far more interest than a year earlier. The idea of the Cape becoming a permanent possession was now very much on the cards. As McCartney wrote at the time, From the first moment of this colony's being possessed by the British government, it was considered as an object of the highest attention and regard, and a resolution was taken never to abandon it. Never to abandon it. And thus, the future of South Africa was encapsulated in one sentence, written in 1795. The only problem was McCartney was not keen on going to the Cape. He was growing old and was tired. He was also suffering from various ailments. More about that in a second. George III personally intervened and asked McCartney to head off to Cape Town, and the Earl reluctantly agreed, arriving as the first ever English governor of the Cape in 1796. Of course, he invited John Barrow to join him. The Viceroy arrived, accompanied by a particularly high-spirited party, all zestful and curious about their African adventure. One of these was McCartney's colonial secretary, Andrew Barnard, whose wife was to become possibly one of the most interesting Europeans ever to set foot on the continent. Lady Anne Barnard was to be McCartney's unofficial hostess. She had a great reputation in Edinburgh and London as witty, intelligent and lively. Lady Barnard, as she'd become known, was open and unaffected by her elite upbringing and interested in everything going on around her. She was a special friend of King George III and well-read. In 1793, she had surprised everyone by marrying a handsome unknown called Andrew Barnard, son of the Bishop of Limerick in Ireland, who was 12 years her junior. Lady Anne was 43. The effect she had on Cape Town cannot be overstressed. Their arrival in the Cape was noted by the Trekboers around Graf Reynet. Most of the Dutch had believed that the lack of a governor, at least at first, was proof that at some point the territory would be handed back to Holland. The problems facing McCartney and his fellow British officials were just starting. South Africa, you see, was not simply the Cape. The frontier which lay up the east coast and to the north was now in Britain's possession. It wasn't just that slender peninsula off the Cape of Good Hope. The interior was a savage land to these high-minded visitors. They called the Trekboers peasants and regarded the Tosa and others as black warring tribes, taking very little interest in their internal matters in the same way the Dutch had ignored the Khoikhoi social system earlier. Major General Craig had been running the Cape on the ground and knew that it had come with an unpleasant assortment of distant and difficult problems. And like the Dutch VOC, they couldn't just shrug off the frontier by leaving it to develop without any control. The Cape was buying its meat for the garrison and for passing fleets from this frontier. They began sizing up possible ports along the east coast, and a few natural harbours could be found. One was in Algoa Bay, which offered a hostile entry point for the French, for example, should they want to link up with the frontier Boers, who'd hauled down the British flag, as we've already heard. When McCartney met Major General Craig, the latter said the frontier Boers had been infected by what he called the rankest poison of Jacobinism. There was a rising storm of political fear in the wake of the French Revolution, with riots and agitation throughout the world. By calling the Boers Jacobin, he implied they were in cahoots with revolutionary France. The oath of allegiance to George III had been rejected by the rebels on the frontier. McCartney wrote that, 
The best thing the Dutch inhabitants can do is to become good English as fast as they can, for certainly they will never see their own flag fly in South Africa again. That kind of talk did not go down well with the Trekboers. The British were extremely rude about the Boers and spoke of the peasants of Graf Reinet, regarding them as intolerable and backward. McCartney had no idea where Graf Reinet was and wrote at one stage that I neither know nor can I learn where this Graf Reinet lies, whether it is 500 or 5,000 miles from Cape Town. He angrily dispatched John Barrow soon after arrival to head east to the presence of these savages, and by that he was not talking about the Causa, he was talking about the Boers. Barrow was tasked with conveying Britain's wishes and immediate intentions so that the Boers had a clear understanding that the new colonizers had enough on their hands and wanted no more trouble from the frontier. Fighting between the Dutch and the Causa would not be tolerated, and Barrow would pass on a message that some adjustment had to be reached between the two immediately. McCartney also said the Dutch should quieten themselves down. McCartney, you know, was in a particularly bad mood. His ailments included what was described as gout in the head and stomach, piles, fistula and kidney stones. It appears the Trekboers didn't really care about his gout in the head, nor his piles, fistula or kidney stones. They petitioned to be allowed to occupy the land beyond the Fish River and to be supplied with even more ammunition for their ongoing war against the sand, as they wrote, It has not yet pleased Providence to extirpate from this colony the rapacious Bushmen. When they used that line with Major General Craig, he'd responded by asking, With what face can you ask me to allow you to occupy lands which belong to other people? What right can I have to give you the property of others? Reflect for a moment on what would be your own sensations were you to hear that I was even debating on a proposal to turn you out of your farms and to give them to others. This perfectly obvious fact escaped the Trekboers, who believed that they had a right to seize this land. It was home to Koza who was stealing their cattle, and that meant they had every right to take it. Craig never saw the result of this. He returned home in May 1797. The old lord as the burghers called McCartney, was going to rule with inelastic efficiency, respected but unable to reconcile the Tosa and the Boers, nor the English and the Boers. McCartney knew that the Tosa were a much bigger threat than the San, so he followed up previous governor's actions by ordering more commandos to drive out the San, while he told Bresler, who was now back as Landros at Graf Reinet, to try and negotiate with Nika, the most powerful Tosa chief. But he warned the Boers that as far as the British were concerned, they had no authority over the Amakosa living in the vicinity of the Fish River, including Zurfeld. In turn, Nika promised that none of his subjects would cross over the river into the colony and said that he would stop bartering with the Boers. McCartney was copying the previous VOC style of diplomacy and poor old Bresler, with his tiny four-man force, was supposed to police all of this. As we'll hear next episode, McCartney suffered from another problem. He used vague terms like established limits of the territory. But what were these limits? It's been argued that at that time soldiers and colonial administrators used phrases like these in the same way as the terms of the Roman Empire. What they meant was fixed lines with fortifications or natural boundaries such as rivers. But either way, they were the demarcation points between so-called civilized people and barbarians. This established limit challenge was going to exercise British officers for the next century. What exactly was a frontier when it was porous? Where are we and where are they? 
Were the Boers civilized or savages, particularly when they lived very much like the Amatkosa? Another frontier war was naturally brewing in the Zeefeld. With that, we'll halt. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you can, and you can message me via my website, desmondlatham.com, or on Twitter, at deslatham. Until next, a jodi and au revoir. 